Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining us for the final episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front for 2022. A huge thanks to all our listeners who have tuned into Finding the Front since we kicked off a little over a year ago. It's really awesome that the podcast has been so well received and has been able to provide some fantastic insights into some pretty amazing people and what has shaped them into the leaders they have become today. In rounding out the year, on behalf of all of us at Euros Hartleys, we would like to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And remember, if you'd like to learn more about Euros Hartleys and the services we can provide, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This episode, we have the wonderful opportunity of having a veteran of the funds management industry on the show. Our special guest is Mr. Ben Griffiths, the co-founder of well-known small and emerging company investment specialist, Ely Griffiths. Ben, who is based in Sydney and on a visit to Perth, grew up on the beautiful eastern suburbs beaches of Bronte, Tamarama and Bondi. In this podcast, we take the time out to learn about Ben's life and career journey where he has accumulated some 30 years of financial markets experience. This includes kicking off his love of investing at the early age of 16, how he started in funds management and learning the immense power of compounding, right through to co-founding the Ely Griffiths Group with colleague and friend, Brian Ely. In this wide-ranging conversation, Ben provides a detailed look into the process of investing small companies and gives his views on the current investing environment. Ben has so much experience and provides a seriously good insight into life as a veteran fund manager and the passion he has for his craft. There are so many takeaways from this chat, so without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Ely Griffiths and all-round great bloke, Mr. Ben Griffiths. Ben, thanks for joining us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It's absolutely fantastic that you could squeeze in some time to join us on your visit to Perth from Sydney, and I know your time's valuable, so thanks very much for squeezing us in. My pleasure, Tim. Looking forward to it. Good on you. So, Ben, just before we kick off, I just wanted to provide some context for the listener around your extensive career in funds management. So as we can go through the journey, and we all have a good insight, so just bear with me for a moment. For the listener, Ben Griffiths is a stalwart of the funds management industry. He's the managing director and senior portfolio manager of the very well-known funds management group and small and emerging company investment specialist, Ely Griffiths. He is a veteran of the industry with over 30 years of financial markets experience and managing money. Ben co-founded Ely Griffiths in 2002 with Brian Ely following a successful career as joint head of small companies at both BT Financial Group 
and ING Investment Management. The Ely Griffiths Group was amongst the earliest boutiques to open their doors in the Australian market. Right from inception, assets under management grew. They built out their investment team and have built a solid track record of performance for investors over a very long period of time. So I'm really looking forward to this story and insights, Ben. It's going to be good. It's going to be actually great to kick off with one of the key points around finding the front. As many of our listeners will know, is to learn about your background, what shaped you and understand how you ended up where you are today. I had the opportunity to do some homework around your background and noted that you grew up in one of the most beautiful parts of Australia, the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Quite right. That would have been a very fun time. Oh, it was terrific. You know, if, you, if you're into surfing and beach life, it, was, it, it had everything one could ask for. It was fantastic. It was a, a privileged upbringing. So did you spend a lot of time in the water? I've lived in the water, basically. Yeah. It wasn't a day that we weren't in there, my brother and I, for hours on end, down at surfing at Tamarama yes. or Bronte, yes. um, or occasionally Bondi if we could be bothered walking around. Yeah. So you grew up with a family of how many? Well, six in the family. There's I had six? Um, so a, four younger, of, a younger brother and, yep. and two younger sisters. And tell us a little bit about your mum and your dad and what they did when you were growing up uh, around Bondi out surfing. Yeah, well, they weren't really beach people, to be honest. Um, right. They'd grown up in the... Dad had grown up in the inner west of Sydney and mum in the northern, northern suburbs, um, so they weren't beach people, but they just happened to find themselves living at the beach. And we uh, essentially, if we weren't at school, we were down the beach running around. And then as I became a, like a teenager, I was sort of drawn to the surf club yeah. Uh, North Bondi Surf Lifesaving Club and became a, like a pretty eager competitor and member down there. But look, growing up down the beach, it, it, was, it was a beach life. It was an innocent upbringing but, and a lot of fun. Gosh, you would have seen some change in Bondi over the years. Yeah, I mean, change across the board. Yeah. Um, starting at property valuations, I suppose. But just in terms of uh, beach life around Bondi today is not what it was back then. I think, uh, fair to say, you can almost draw a line from the Sydney Olympics when they hosted the beach volleyball down at Bondi. Yes. And that absolutely catalyzed enormous interest in all things related to Bondi and, in fact, the beach generally. But down at Bondi, that launched uh, the eastern suburbs and from 2000, Surf Lifesaving Club memberships exploded. Interesting in surfing down at Bondi exploded. And it really seems to line up around, around the Sydney Olympics in September 2000. Yes, the crowds that it draws there are huge. Oh, it's crazy. It used to be very seasonal. October or March, which is the conventional swimming season, is when Bondi and Tamarama Bronte were busy. Yeah. And then it would peter out through winter. If you go there now, you'll find it's almost indiscernible whether you're there in August or they're there in February. It's packed. It's packed. Yeah, it's crowded. In fact, that just goes for all Sydney beaches. Yeah. Um, there's not much differentiation between swimming season and non-swimming season. So, Ben, do you ride a board? Uh, occasionally. Haven't ridden a board for a little while, but occasionally go up my son. I need a bit of a long board for a bit of stability for the old <laughs> yeah. frame. A little bit heavier than I was when I used to used to ride a board. But uh, occasionally get out there on the board. Tend these days to be a, a pretty keen body surfer and occasionally get in, invited to uh, jump back in the surf boat and row a few um, and do some rows with the boys. Oh, fantastic. So, Ben, I was doing a bit of homework around your family and it was pretty hard not to miss that you're the son of Harry Griffiths. I know your mum was a flight attendant with TAA and Harry was a famous radio star in essence. 
Tell us a little bit about that growing up. Would have been just uh, quite a quite a fun place to be. I would have thought. Yeah, no, it was. And the funny thing was, we were well versed with Dad's antics and Dad's participation in with, with working with Mo and the old radio shows with Mo Roy Reen. We were well familiar with that. And Dad would do the shows at the Tivoli all those years ago and be broadcasting because we didn't have television back in the in the fifties in the early fifties when Dad was on 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 radio. So it was the foremost entertainment media for Australians. My father played the role of young Harry, who was Moe's offsider, and they had a series of comedy skits shows, um, which would have all of Australia in, in raptures and in laughter every um, every weekend. The significant thing, I guess, was that whilst I only knew about it through Dad telling the stories, all my friends' fathers, mothers and fathers and grandparents <laughs> all knew who Dad was and were quite taken aback when they realised just who I was. And my school teachers too. My old deputy principal would occasionally bring me in and I think, oh, what have I done wrong? And he'd say, I remember the, that, the scene that your father performed <laughs> when he got a laugh that went on for 30 seconds. So I used to get summoned occasionally to the, to the deputy principal's office so he could, could relay a story. Now, today, a lot of those stories have kind of been lost as we've moved on and there's generational change. But certainly with the older generation, there's a fond recollection of my father's contribution to radio. And, and yeah, Dad was, a, Dad was a laugh a minute. He was, a, he was like a bit of a practical joker and, yeah. and always had us in, in laughter at home. Gosh, so just for the listener, I was doing a bit of research and I found this article was published eight years ago back in 2014 in the Sydney Morning Herald. I just love this story. Bear with me, Ben. I just want to give everyone a bit of background. So Ben's grandfather was Harry, and he was known as Harry Senior. He was a musician. And uh, when he was in Brisbane performing, after one show, he took Ben's dad, Harry Junior, backstage to meet Brisbane's favourite comedic son, Sid Beck. Sid offered Ben's dad, Harry, who was nine years old at the time, a walk-on role in the following week for his show, including a couple of speaking lines. I thought this ties back to Ben today, but going home around that time, you could imagine Harry's excitement. Harry Jr., Ben's dad, said to Harry Sr., when I grow up, this is what I would like to do for a living. Harry Sr. provided a classic response. Don't go into show business. Show business is eating pheasant one day and eating feathers the next. But the die was cast. Harry went on to do some amazing things and the article highlights a lot about that show that Ben refers to in terms of Harry Griffiths and Roy, Roy Moreen's radio show called Macaque Mansions. It was the most listened to 12 minutes in the history of Australian radio. Cop this, young Harry, uttered Mo to Griffiths, became part of the Australian language. It was so popular it went on to show or release 155 episodes over nearly six years. So, Ben, look, I just wanted to highlight that because it's pretty interesting. Harry was the first television producer for Australia's largest advertising agency. He wrote, produced, directed and cast 35 stage shows for various clients all over Australia. That involved orchestras, performers, presenters, dancers, singers and comedians. And he was president of the Australian Society of Comedians. I know that's a bit off to the left field, but what a what an amazing uh, achievement your dad had in that field. All the, all the more amazing in that he also offered me the same advice that his father gave him: don't go into show business, don't <laughs> do it. And yeah. um, the difference between dad and I is I, I listened. Dad would get us occasionally into television commercials, so we did quite a few co- television commercials as kids growing up. He was keen for us to be sort of peripheral players in 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 his world. 
but I had no yearning for that. No. Um, that wasn't for me. My old man loved the stage, loved the whole thing. He had must have had fifteen fancy checked and tartan suits at home. He'd wear out and everything. It was the whole. The, Dad led a bit of a vaudevillian life. That was how he carried on. Yeah, but he was keen for none of us children to really follow in that path. He he knew the unreliable nature of showbiz earnings, and you know you're you're in in fashion one minute and then you're out on the street the next. Yes. So he said that's. You know, Dad. Dad acknowledged he had luck, great luck, but that's it's no, it's no, there's no longevity in that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I took the advice, I, I guess. So that kept that, away from the stage. Well, he obviously uh, got you into school and got you champing at the bit to try and make something outside of show business or or that. That's it. So where did you go to school in in Sydney? I went to a school that's no longer there, Dover Heights Boys High School, right. which was the, the government school up the road. Yes. And it was, I guess, the government school in a in a fairly. Um, affluent suburb so it probably wasn't going to last too long and it didn't so um the school ended up merging with another school and but it was i went, went to school with a great bunch of guys had a, had a great time and i still see we had our 40 year reunion the other day and i still see out of the 35 guys in my year i, I think there were 25 turned up to the 40 year reunion god that's um, great yeah no it was great uh, and terrific fellas had it, and no regrets on on the, on the education i got and so through all this your mum had a pretty important role to play yeah, and no, mum was very nurturing Yeah, and played a great role in making sure we were all able to, you know, get by with what we had and didn't go without. Yes. There were no extravagances, by the way. Uh, there were no international holidays. We used to holiday up at Crescent Head up on the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales and any board riders that are around listening to that today will know that's um, one, of, one of the great point breaks. Magnificent. Or we'd go out to uh, Ivanhoe, which is out in uh, far western New South Wales, and and join our relatives there on their sheep and cattle station. And we did uh, Ivanhoe every August, and we did Crescent Head every May from the ages of about seven till eighteen. So, yeah, there was wonderful. No, no international travel in those days, Tim. It was strictly <laughs> strictly um, in within New South Wales. So, one of the questions we ask when. You know, we talk about schooling and that sort of thing. You clearly enjoyed your school, but when you look at your career path, did you know what you wanted to do when you were going to leave school? That investing part of your life, when did it start to nurture? When did you, or what got you started in that area? Well, I can honestly say it was Dad showing me a dividend chit or a dividend slip and said, all you kids have got 10 BHP shares each. These have been bought for you and... And I, I was 15 or 16 and I said, what are these actually all about? Are they like coupons? What are these things? And Dad explained them to me. And then we would see every so often more dividends would come through on your 5 or 10 BHP shares. And I was, I was just intrigued by what the whole idea of what this was all about. And it was explained to me as you're part owner of an Australian business and there are thousands, well back then there wasn't thousands, but there would have been many hundreds of similarly listed businesses on, on the Australian Stock Exchange or the Sydney Stock Exchange it was as it was then correctly known. Yes. And I uh, was fascinated by it and I started looking at the different names in the share price listings that we all look at in the paper and I saw names, Ansett Transport Industries, TNT, Speedo Holdings, Pacific Dunlop. Um, I was fascinated that I knew all these names. I knew all these companies from, from products we had at home or, and I wanted to know more. And so I, I sort of started inquiring a, a bit about it and then realised if I saved up, I had a couple of part-time jobs, as you might imagine back then. I was a, a milkman for a period and I moved furniture for a while and, and I used to um, be a night filler at a, at, a, at a general store and I'd save enough money up, $500, after several weeks of work and then go and buy shares 
beyond BHP, I'd buy shares in Ansett Transport Industries was my first share. Right. And then I bought some bought some Western Mining, I recall, the original Western Mining. And I built myself a little portfolio that wasn't worth much, but I, I all of a sudden really got a taste for this is where I, I want to put my savings in this stuff. I, I, I understand that this is where I can maybe get some nice dividends from. I hadn't actually seen the, the capital growth side of in stock investing. I, I wasn't privy to that. But I'd seen the dividends and it made sense and it was a heck of a lot better than the interest that I wasn't getting. Yes. Or was getting as the case what may be. Yeah. So that started about what age? Oh, about 16. 16, was yeah. it? Yeah, and that was just a gentle prod from the old man who himself, despite the fact that he had a show business background and all due respect to any show business types that are listening in, I mean, th- there's often not a lot of money management finesse in show business, yes. right? Let's face it, the, the disciplines are, aren't naturally uh, identified with that industry. But certainly dad had them from his mother who, who said you need to begin a life of accumulating growth assets and the smartest growth assets to accumulate are stocks, are shares basically. They're accessible. You can buy them. For, you're not waiting to, to buy a property. You can actually, with as little as a couple of hundred bucks, you can start a portfolio. And then the concept that I had no idea about, which I've since learnt and which is absolutely the eighth wonder of the world, is the magic of compounding. Yes. And that is putting money to work in stocks, for instance, or any growth asset, and then putting the dividends back into to the market. And then and that reinvestment process and capital accumulation, all of a sudden you have compounding working for you. And I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I probably should have. And I look back at it, that's how this pot of money sort of started to grow. Uh, yeah. It was a, it's an extraordinary thing to get the taste of. And I, and I started, I, got, I developed that taste at about 16. So you ended up doing reasonably well at school because you went on and did a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in Accounting, Finance and Systems at the University of New South Wales. Yeah. Did that sort of go about strengthening that desire to be more informed, develop a framework around investing? Or did you just sort of think, right, well, business might be my angle? I just knew that to make it in stockbroking, which I sort of thought I might be heading towards, yes. um, I'm going to need more than a, an HSC. Yep. I'm going to need further refinement. And a Bachelor of Commerce made a lot of sense to me, or a Bachelor of Economics. I was after some sort of business course. That's what I was looking for, and that's what I signed up for. And I was, look, I was only ever, uh, and I was a satisfactory student. I got through, didn't shoot the lights out. I enjoyed the campus life. Yeah. And, 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 and I attended to my studies when required. Did you play any sport growing up outside of the surf? Well, when I was at uni, I was a reasonable judo player, so I played, I practiced competitive judo, so yeah, right. I was okay at that. Yep. Surfing, I was I was not bad at, but I mean, surf lifesaving, I rode. I rode for North Bondi Junior Boat Crew, three years and then two years as a senior. So that was probably my sport. The school I went to didn't offer much outside of water polo and soccer, and they were great sports at the time, but there was more to be had. So surf lifesaving catered for that for, for that, me. Yes. It was surf boat rowing was my sport. Oh, absolutely. And, and we weren't too bad. I was probably on the lighter side of the, um, the size of most of the typical surf boat rowers. But I enjoyed it. Oh, fantastic. So on we go into when you kicked off into your working life. You got through the degree, but to get a job as a stockbroker when you first started out, how did that start? I mean, you sound like you were pretty keen early in life. So did you start your work experience whenever you could? Yeah, no, I did. And actually the school that I went to, Dover Heights, had their, as many schools did at the time, they had a work experience program in year 10 where you had to, for two weeks, you had to go and work somewhere and yes. actually get a, get a taste of what it's like to um, work nine to five and put a collar and tie on. And the school was handing out, the school said, right, the program will start in several months' time. You'll be handed a job for two weeks, preferably two, one at one employer and then one somewhere else. 
and uh, but you'll be notified where you're going to be working. We'll get back to you. And it sat with me for a while, and I thought about it, and I thought, well, I don't want to go and work where the school wants, wants to send me. I think I want to go and do some work experience myself in a stockbroker. And so I used to get my hair cut in the city, a barber shop that my father went to all his life. He didn't have much hair, but he still went to the barber shop. Yeah. But he used to direct my brother and I into a barber shop in Wynyard. So I went in one day to get my hair cut, and on the way in, I thought I might just swing past and do a couple of cold calls on a couple of stockbrokers. So I had two or three brokers in mind that I'd written down, and I was only 16 at this stage, bear that in mind. Yes. And I literally went up and turned up, rocked up, and, and introduced myself to a couple of brokers, actually different brokers, and... Doug Grice expressed from Roach Tilly Grice and Company, a firm that's no longer around, but right. was, was certainly prominent back then. Doug Grice just said, I'm interested, send the forms in on, and we'll have a talk about it. So one thing led to another, and when the school was handing out where people were going to work, and they said, Ben, you'll be working at Waverley Council Chambers for the first week, and then week two, we've got you a job at Perfect Panels, which is the smash repair business on Bondi Road. I said, <laughs> actually, I've got, um, I've got news for you. I've actually been offered a job two weeks at a stockbroker's, Roach Chili Grice and Company, so I'll, I won't be accepting the job at uh, Waverley Council nor the perfect panels position <laughs> as a trainee um, panel beater, so that won't be happening either. So I'm going to be in broking, and the school reluctantly agreed, and Dad said if the school says no, I'll be up there straight away. So Dad was proud. Dad, Dad was proud. Yeah. Dad was proud, and um, off I went, and I did two weeks stockbroking there, running around, dropping off envelopes around the city, they even let me down on the trading floor, which was a pretty hectic, exciting, exhilarating place to visit. And I used to run uh, messages down there, did that as well. And so I was, uh, I was completely and utterly spellbound by... Captivated. Oh, totally. And just the research capabilities and, and just the whole industry and the dynamics. And they said to me at the end of it, and they actually paid me, I think, although I know they did pay me, I think they might have paid me $100 a week to do the work there. And I remember I've never seen so much money in my life and I said, look, you're not supposed to pay. As the school says, no one pays. But I put $200 in my pocket. Well, actually, it put it straight into the market, of course, as you might expect. Yes. And they just said, whenever you want to work school holidays, um, come on in. And so I literally, from that would have been sort of late year 10 going into year 11, I literally worked every school holidays at the brokers. And it was at the end of when I just finished my HSC or coming into year 12, Doug Grice said to me, we don't want to see you. You've got to go to university. You can come back every uni break, but you've got to go and get yourself properly tertiary qualified, make yourself really useful, and then come back and see us. So that's what I did. I did as I was told. I went and got the degree. Pretty big advice at the I was time. top advice. It yep. was outstanding. And yep. to take on, it was almost like a fatherly advice. Doug Grice sort of brought me under his wing and was determined that, that I do it right. So it was terrific. I worked every uni holidays on the trading floor, answering phones and running messages. And I was, I was starting to write research reports. I'd seen how the professionals did them, and I thought, well, I'm going to do some stock research myself. So I was employing, when I got to uni, some of my basic accounting ratio work, and I started writing my first research reports, which were you know, only one page long. And it was Speedo Holdings was my first report that I wrote, and Speedo was a buy. And uh, I presented it at the morning meeting. Again, I was probably aged, um, I was at uni at this stage, so I might have been aged about 19. So I stood up in front of about 40 people at the morning meeting. Some seasoned, seasoned professionals. Well, you're high, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and, I and they um, had got a, quite a bit of laughter and a few rounds of applause and, and I was recommending Speedo Holdings. I recall a year or two later, Speedo Holdings was under takeover bid by a company called, I think it was, I might be wrong here, Danford Investments. or Anyway, I forgot the group that was acquiring them. And one of the guys pulled me aside, one of the operators, and said to me, so what do you think about the bid? And I said, oh, it looks like it undervalues it, I think. I mean, it looks like it's going cheap. I said, well, well why? And he said, 
I said, you were at the morning meeting, were you, when I made the recommendation two years ago? He goes, yeah, I was, and I bought the shares. He said, I've made a good game out of them, and you got me into them. You're going to get me out? And so <laughs> I was quite chuffed that someone actually listened yeah. and bought them. So I got a bit of a taste there, I suppose. Yes. And I should tell you the story that towards the end of my uh, university days, I was planning on going overseas, and I was going to go and travel with a mate. And I'd saved my money up, and I didn't have a huge amount of money to spend because I had to use the money I'd make to live throughout the year. And I went to the morning meeting and this great old broker who's no longer with us, bless his soul, Fred McClure, used to stand up every Christmas and give the tip for the next year, the stock that was going to go up. And Fred McClure stood up and said, I, for next year I, I've done some work and we think that a company called Minoil Securities, and it was originally known as, and some of the listeners will recall it, Cliffman X Resources. Cliffman X Resources became Minoil Securities. They were 20 cent shares. I heard the spiel, walked out of the morning meeting and I thought, right, I'll buy $2,000 worth. So I put $2,000, which is all the money I'd made for yes. the week's work experience, or the week's work, bought $2,000 worth of shares in mineral securities and then went to uni. And by the end of that year, as, as I was concluding my studies and getting ready to go overseas, the shares were 80 cents. So I turned my $2,000 into $8,000 and that was as close to a Powerball win as, <laughs> it, as a young man yes. could possibly have. So I went to Europe as a sort of 20, 21-year-old with $8,000 of spending money. Feeling quite happy. I was on top of the world. So I got a great taste that do the work, listen to the right people, mm. and then the real returns come when you've actually got to put a bit of money on and you've got to put enough money on to be uncomfortable. And I'd put all, basically all my wages on this stock and then had to ride the next 12 months out. So I had a risk appetite, yes. which you need, but you've got to be prepared to bet it. So I was ready to bet it and I did it. And that, for me, that was my first big win and it gave me a taste that you can actually make some money in the stock market. So just furthering that, you developed clearly the passion for the stock market. You went in and became a stockbroker. You went from what turned out to be Roach Tilly Grice. Doug Grice clearly was an influence in your life. Then you went on to May CL May Miller. Was that in a stockbroking capacity as well? That's right. After a number of years of working at Roaches, I was keen to get off the trading floor. I was working down there in the open outcry, the old you see the old footage. There's not much of it left these days. It's all digitised and on computers. But, but the old open outcry marketplaces, the old stock market floors, I was down there for a number of years. And I was ready to, I thought, move on to the dealing desk as a professional or institutional dealer. And I guess that option was slow to, to develop it at Roach Tilly Grice. I was really keen, but it wasn't happening. Yes. And I got an offer to join May Mellor in that capacity. So I joined May Mellor as a trainee institutional dealer. And that was all very exciting. I, and I became an institutional dealer. So I had my list of clients and I had to get some ideas and start broking them and, and I did all of that. Yes. And really got a taste for being a dealer. I'm just interested through there when you went through this period of time in your life, reading the financial literature seems to be a pretty important part of all this. Clearly you could write a research report. You clearly did your, your research around companies, around employment opportunities, around expectations of company performance, that sort of thing. Tell us, what were you reading a lot of? Or were you reading a lot in those days? No, I wasn't reading much at all other than the mainstream financial media, the financial press. Yeah, I get the power, which I often talk about, and I talk to my guys in the office, not that they need any advice, but it's the power of the writings of some of the great investors of the world. I mean, Warren Buffett's an obvious one. There's a number of books on Buffett. Yes. But there are great books out there. And so I really accidentally sort of happened upon the power of 
reading about the great masters and the, and the terrific investors, it was well and truly into my 30s where other people were reading them and I happened upon somewhat of a library of these books and thought, what are these all about? And I started reading them and that just unlocked, I think, the potential in me and I certainly and unlocked an awareness that I all of a sudden had that there's a smart, sophisticated way to learn how to be an investor. Yes. And let's start with some of these masters, some of these extraordinary investors in the States. We talk about Warren Buffett, but Joel Greenblatt's another one, and Joe Granville's another legendary investor in the States. There is, it is just so rich and deep, that the readings you can do. Yes. And I started doing them, and only in my 30s, and I have not stopped consuming that style of books since. Is that right? Yeah. So in the early days, though, you were just really learning on the job, learning the, the role that the stock market played and what you could do to make some money out of it for your clients and for yourself. Completely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my world sharpened up big time when I joined Mercantile Mutual. and I'm sure you'll get to that because you've got the timeline on me nicely nailed down, but it was really the arrival when I arrived at Mercantile Mutual, which became ING Investment Management. That is when the learning started. Yes. It was, it was a profound time for me. I mean, that is where I seriously believe I was shaped as an investor during that time. And we can talk about the personalities and, and who was behind that. But it was at that time I became a voracious reader of financial manuscripts and books. I learned the art of technical analysis from Edwards and McGee. I heard about a guy called W.D. Gann, who's one of the world's most proficient and spectacular technical traders. Yes. And all of these uh, writings and histories came into play. I mean, I got a great understanding for how Buffett and Munger, how they operated and what they look for in investing. It was almost revolutionary in terms of my, my thinking. Oh, fantastic. Just before we get to that point, I know there's some pretty important parts here that if I just go to the left a little bit, your lovely wife, Cherie, you met her in 1990, which was when you were at May Mellor. That is an early part of what's been, well, she's been a long time supporter of yours, clearly, over that period. Tell us a little bit about Sheree and her role in terms of how did you meet her? Well, Sheree worked for a broker that I used to work for and I literally left around the time she arrived, so I never really met her there. Yeah. We just caught up in the days after I'd left, coincidentally, it might have been a work function or something, and we, our paths crossed and then it sort of things sort of went from there. So she understood your industry? Totally. Completely <laughs> understood the industry. She, she knew what people got up to. She knew that late nights can be a part of it. She also knew the good times were a part of it too. So, um, But she was excited to be in the industry herself. And then as we sort of got further down our relationship and ended up getting engaged, she knew what she was signing up for, I guess, and we went forward together. And yeah. she has a complete understanding of how this business works. One of the great champions of my move to set up this business that we're in today with Brian Ely. She yeah. was instrumental, no doubt about it. And then you guys have gone on to have three kids. Three kids, correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Three young adults. All three of them, Sheree and I, are immensely proud. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. That's great. So just before we get on to when you get into funds management, I just wanted to – you had a period of time there with Mace Westpac where you were a gold bullion dealer. Tell us a little bit about that because it's pretty pivotal in terms of understanding how the commodity markets work. Yeah, so those that have been investing and have been in the markets since the 80s will recall that the immediate period after the 87 stock market crash was probably the most challenging time for the securities industry, the broking industry that Australia has seen in the modern era. There was a right-sizing or contracting of the number of brokers. A lot of heads were cut from the industry in 88, 89. Firms folded. Yes. As you point out, I work for May Mellor. 
they had earlier merged with or been taken over by Credit Lyonnais of France. I joined on a five-year commitment that Credit Lyonnais had to the Australian stockbroking industry and, and that uh, commitment lasted less than 12 months. Right. Such was the uh, fickleness of... What year are we talking about here? This is back in uh, 89, 90. Right, ar- yeah, ar- after around, the crash. Around that time. Yes. And so uh, I lost my job, and as many did at that time, and the industry was contracting, and there was literally no prospect, and it was not obvious, no prospect of a rebound in fortunes for the securities industry in Australia. It was a miserable time. Yes. Tough time. Economically tough. Stock market was miserable. So I, I worked on the back of a furniture truck for about six months. In between, I was going for jobs that... Basically, there'd be 100 or 200 applicants for, and it was, it was hopeless. And then an opportunity to join, it wasn't what I wanted to do ideally, but it was, it was, it was the gold bullion business and a company by the name of Mace Westpac, a subsidiary of Westpac, obviously. And they traded gold, silver, platinum, both as a, as a principal, but also they bought and sold gold on behalf of Australian mining companies. So I was in, involved in helping Australian mining companies hedge their gold, put forward uh, strategies to hedge and protect their exposures. Right. And so we had a lot of interaction with the Australian mining, the big miners, the major gold miners, and also assisting on the, the spot trading desk. So it was a couple of years there doing that in the early 90s, and I learned a lot. I learned about how bankers think, Yes. But which was a heck of a lot different to how brokers think. And it was a great learning time, good learning experience. I saw a bit. That's not what I wanted to do. And I was hoping, desperately hoping, that the fortunes of the securities industry would turn and there'd be some opportunities in back in stockbroking. Yes. I hadn't really thought about funds management, to be honest. I didn't didn't know that I, I just wasn't really across that well enough. So I was looking for broken opportunities and then... I opened the financial review and there was an ad, a position wanted. It was equities dealer at Mercantile Mutual. And I looked at that and I thought, I know the previous person who had that role and I know that manager and I used to broke to them and I I can do that role. Yes. So I rang the incumbent and said, I'm going to submit an application for that role. And he said, yeah, well, we expect a big response. But yes, I know who you are, send it in. So I sent my CV in and I went through the motions of being interviewed and they had 85 respondents to that advertisement. And I got the job. I got the job as the equities dealer and options dealer for Mercantile Mutual, and I was, I was thrilled. Oh. I didn't exactly know what I was getting myself into, but I'd be leaving the bullion industry, yes, which had been good to me, but wasn't really where I wanted to be. But I was joining a, a funds management business, and, and I was excited about that. So tell us about that. You ended up in there and basically thrown in the deep end. Oh, well, I, I knew my way around the market, but in terms of being an equities dealer on behalf of a big fund manager, I had to learn how they did things and yes. what they expected of me. And it was a nice, tight team. The equities guys were smart fellas. And it wasn't long after I joined that a guy called Greg Matthews joined as the head of equities. And Greg Matthews would prove to be certainly for me, transformational in my journey into funds management. And I say that because Greg was not only a decent fellow, but Greg was a very astute, clever, smart investor who led the equities team. And it was a team of hardworking, diligent, smart market animals who were detailed in their analysis. But most importantly, they realised that they were in the performance business and we had to be buying and selling stocks and, and making good returns. And our little equities unit was comfortably among the best performing Australian equity managers year in, year out. So I was their dealer. I yes. was responsible for their executions and I quickly learnt and contributed to the whole 
decision-making process there. I was a very active and interwoven member of that process. So they'd seek your opinion? Oh, absolutely. And I thrived in that environment. And that's when I learned about some of the masters, the great investors, where the guys there were active readers of of some of the the, the investing legends. And I became aware very quickly that I had some real learning to do because I actually didn't know much at all. And I was there for a long period of time. I was there for nine years. And through that experience at Mercantile Mutual, which became ING uh, halfway through that time there, I was given stocks to analyse. I was given relationships to talk to and to meet brokers and analysts. And within sort of four or five years, I was given my first portfolio to look after. Right. And the responsibilities that go with that are enormous and do a good job. They give you a bit more money to look after. What sort of money were you looking after at that stage? Well, I started with a little portfolio of about $40 million in it. And I'd sweat over that money and make sure it performed well. And before long, the 40 was 120. Then I was part of a bigger unit where we had several hundred million that we looked after. I was initially spending a lot of time on resource stocks, mining companies and what we call basic industries or building material type names. So Borel, CSR, James Hardy in the resources sector with uh, another gentleman there, Vic Petrans. So we covered the ground, looked after the money. It was full on. I had the full load on at every point. So my introduction to funds management, my introduction to stock selection, but importantly working in a big business like ING, it was my introduction to compliance procedures, formalised processes. There's a way in which you conduct yourself and how you run a funds management business. It wasn't a punting fund. You were looking after people's money. Yes, You had marketing responsibilities as much as you had portfolio responsibilities, client liaison, the whole thing. So I had a, it was more than a 101, it was a thorough indoctrination into business of managing money. And you clearly thrived on it though, Ben. You really did find your niche and that was where you could see yourself just progressing from there. Totally, loved it. I I learned about risk management. I learned about placing bets, but placing bets with an eye to downside. I also got the rush of buying a stock that performed strongly, recommending one one of my associates buy a stock and then recommending that they sell it when the time was right. I remember steering the small cap managers. It was David Paradise and Peter Mullet at the time. They came and saw me and said, right, we think we should own a gold stock. Any thoughts? And I said, look, you should be buying Eagle Mining. And we should buy a lot of Eagle Mining. I like the look of what they're doing. I like the project and the asset they've got. And so I strong-armed the boys into owning, I think it was 8.5% of Eagle Mining. And then within 15 months, maybe sooner, it was bid for by um, one of Joe Gutnick's businesses and we more than doubled our money on it. And they were like over the moon that one gold stock that they didn't want to own, but they weren't sure what they wanted to own, but I made them buy it. Yes. We doubled our money on a very substantial position. And so I guess... It all adds to the story. It adds to the story. It gave me confidence, self-belief that I can mix it with the big guys. And also when you've got a strong view and you've got conviction, you back yourself. And I'd done the work and I was sufficiently familiar with the operating features of that particular gold operation. So this all went to the learnings about yes. um, about how I'm going to become a good fund manager. I'm going to place bets. I'm going to put positions in place. I'm going to do the work and I'm going to be assiduously manage them and then hopefully get a bit lucky with an updraft or even a takeover bid. Yes. Ben, I'm curious at this point. At this point, you really have a thorough understanding of your own risk tolerance. Fair to say? How do you develop that over time? Yeah, everyone's got their own risk tolerance. What are they prepared to take, risk versus reward? And that is a really key point to all investors. How did you develop your own understanding, do you think, of your risk-reward tolerance? And clearly doing the work is very much part of that. 
Yeah, well, that's. I think that's. I think you've hit it in the head there. It's actually about doing the work to the point where you're sufficiently confident that you've balanced the risks and that the, the balance of probabilities are on what you know and where the market's positioned. And looking at the the technical setup, the chart, you can see that you might be sitting on an important support line. The fundamental story is strong. The backdrop of a gold price is also compelling. The balance of probabilities would suggest the line of least resistance is up, not down. You go from there. Clearly. Things don't always work that way and the real test for a person who has a risk management hat on is when a stock gets junked, halves, comes under heavy selling pressure and the question you have to ask as a responsible fund manager is, okay, well, I like it at a dollar, it's now 50 cents, am I buying more of it? Yes. If I'm not buying more of it, then I think you should be selling it. I mean, and so you ask yourself that question frequently. Whenever I'd size up an investment idea and I do it to this day and it was drummed into me at, at Mercantile Mutual, it's question has to be asked at the time you're considering an investment, where can this investment thesis be wrong? Where will I be wrong? Yes. And spend all the time focusing on the three or four elements of where that scenario, where the thesis will derail. Right. And if you can get comfortable on where it will derail and you can wear that risk and you can stomach it, then I think you've, you will have matured and you'll be ready to place the bet. And yes. that's, and I, to this day, we don't place a, an investment at, at Ely Griffiths Group until we've thoroughly discussed where where can we go wrong? Where yep. will this thesis be wrong? Yeah. That's important. And you just got to be, some people aren't natural risk takers. Some people are, I've observed, are outstanding analysts. They do some beautiful research. They ask all the right questions, but ask them to actually place a bet in a stock or sector, they go to water. So placing bets and taking risks, not everyone's cup of tea. No. Not everyone's cup of tea. But you developed that feel for where you sat and, and you were able to apply it at Mercantile Mutual with ING. Correct. How did the transition then go into BT? Well, Brian Ely joined me towards the end, uh, as it turns out, at the end of our tenure at, at Mercantile Mutual. Yes. Brian G, as it was then known. And we weren't planning on going anywhere. Brian and I had joined up as a small cap double act. Right. We knew each other. Brian was a broker and I was a fund manager and we came together. We knew each other well. We were quite complementary in our skill sets. Brian was a very detailed, deep thinker. He was a terrific analyst. He was forensic in, in everything he did in the way he approached things. I had elements of that, but I had a great healthy overlay of market smarts and market mongrel, as, as we sometimes describe it. I had that going on, and um, the combination of a person who's doing the, the detail modelling, the guy with the, um, the market trading hat on, uh, that can be a pretty powerful combo. So we joined up, did that for a long time. We also did quite a bit of media. We did a lot of client liaison. The one thing about, again, what I learned working in a big shop, there are multiple responsibilities, responsibilities to clients, to asset consultants and research houses. Occasionally you do media appearances and so on. And I think our, Brian and my efforts in that area did not go unnoticed. Yes. Bankers Trust made an approach and said, we need you two guys to come over here and, and help with our small cap efforts and we'd like you to kind of do what you're doing there. Would you mind doing it over here? Because we want to do it a bit differently than we've currently been doing it. Yes. So we... Uh, we jumped at the opportunity. It was sad to go and say goodbye to what had been a great team at, at Mercantile Mutual, but there had been some substantial personnel change there too. Right. So people had moved on and Peter Mowat became was my boss at the late late stages and he was every bit as accommodating as um, as Greg Matthews was and encouraging of my career. Yes. And I learnt from Peter as as much as I learnt from Greg. And it was I was blessed with one of the great I think I would honestly say one of the great industry trainings and, and preparations. But I was ready to leave the nest. Brian used to say it's very hard to become a prophet in your own land. 
you, right. you, you, you need to you need to leave to go and get the recognition. Yeah, yeah. and um, that wasn't why we left. Um, didn't go for recognition. Went for for the next stage of my career. Yeah. but it's so true. You have, sometimes have to leave the nest, and then you get you seek recognition elsewhere. Yes. So that's what happened. And Did you you both joined as joint heads of the joint heads joint heads of the BT small that's right small cap company fund correct yeah and so we joined there and I suppose it was probably a it was a great move because I'd learnt a heck of a lot in ten months we were only there for ten months because as you might recall the US group principal that owned BT unbeknownst to us had decided it was going to put BT up for sale so principal of the US sold BT to Westpac and Westpac had just consumed Rothschilds as well. Right. So it became a bit of a mishmash of th- three managers, a large number of specialists looking after Australian equities and if you didn't want to be part of that, you could put your hand up and Brian and I, after 10 months in, with all the integration issues that that would encompass, we said, look, we'd rather, if it's possible, to take a check and exit stage left, we'll do that if you don't mind. Yes. So we did. And the check became the, the basis under which Ely Griffiths Group began. So... That's how it how it started, and so we're at two thousand and two. Two thousand and two, correct. Yeah. So just for the listener, Ely Griffiths began operations in early two thousand and three. I picked up this excerpt, but they saw an opportunity to bring their experience and well honed investment process to bear in a small shop setting. I thought that was pretty interesting, Ben. In terms of when you got together and said, "Right, well, BT is not for us. What's the next stage?" Did you and Brian just sit around? having a beer and saying, well, this is where I see the next step. Yeah, well, as I recall it, we did have that beer. It might have even been a glass of wine, but um, yep. whatever it was, we were sitting down talking about the options and Brian had a, a more conservative leaning that he thought we could get a job with an existing manager, maybe go and join another group. I said, well, you are joking. I mean, this has got to be the opportunity to go and set up our own business. David Paradise had done it a year or two earlier. Jeff Wilson had set off as well. Um, Robert Maple Brown from Maple Brown Abbott fame had, had done it a number of years earlier. I said it looks it looks like the looks like the way to go if you've got enough self confidence and you can, you back yourself. I think we have a shot at that. And if it doesn't work, well, we'll go back and get a job with someone else. Yes. But I think we've got to do it. And I said, Brian, think of what we're going to learn. I mean, we're going to learn a heck of a lot. And if it doesn't work, well, just um, it was one of those things that just didn't go the way we thought. So we set course, got a license. And opened the doors in January of 2003, got the licence in late 2002 and went forward from there. And it was a very slow start because those listening to the podcast will recall that stock markets had fallen apart in the preceding two or three years. April, March, April 2000, the dot-com boom that had been raging for years fell apart. Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft, Apple, they all got junked. Stock markets went into a major, major implosion. And stocks were entering their thir- about to enter their third year of misery, and it was a tough time. And people said, "You've got to be crazy going out setting your own business up. What are you doing?" I mean, it's just the worst possible time given all that's gone wrong. And I think the key learning from that was, if you're going to do something as a startup or doing anything, you do it when it feels right. Yes, there's never a good time. No, there's never a bad time. I think you do it when you're right, when you're either emotionally or psychologically or professionally positioned correctly, you go and do it. And that's what we did against everyone's recommendations, except for our, our wives, I will say. Both Brian's wife, Simone, and, and Cherie just said, you guys just do it, get it off your chest. Let's go, you've got our support. Let's have a crack. Let's have a crack. And yep. that's what we did. And that yep. was uh, January 2003. A tough time in stock markets. As it turns out, of course, unbeknownst to us, that pretty well marked the bottom, if you can believe it. It was December 2002 was, in fact, the bottom of the dot-com 
implosion and stocks began their climb upwards. When you began? When we began. It's call it ass, call it what you like. <laughs> it was it was coincidence, it was serendipity, wow. it was good fortune. Tell me though, in that respect, one of the key parts of a funds management business is the clients. How did you go in the early days attracting clients? Did the name that came with your time at Mercantile Mutual, ING, BT, bring with it some clients that were able to come on board and support you in the early days? Or did you have to get out there and, and really market? Oh, look, well, I think we were known. Yes. And our names carried some weight, but not enough weight to land with the check. Right. So we didn't arrive with any money. We didn't have immediate backing. We got meetings. We got airtime. But people were rather slow on they weren't forthcoming with the checkbook, and that's fine. Between Brian and I, we, we still had mortgages and young families at home. Yes. So we didn't have a huge amount of our own money to, to put to work. It was a matter of opening and then hoping for the best. The old analogy of the empty restaurant scenario, you know, nobody eats in an empty restaurant. Yes. And they always try and fill the window seats up and away it goes. We were exactly that. We were the empty restaurant that no one was keen to pop in on. So we had to get someone in the front window fast. Right. And we would go... I promise you we would we'd get a call from someone in Adelaide who wanted to have a chat about something and we'd fly to Adelaide for a 40-minute meeting yes. and then fly back to Sydney. Whatever it took. Whatever it took. Yep. And the one luxury we gave ourselves, I recall Brian and I said, look, we're going to do it tough here. This is going to be a long grind. I don't know, we, we don't know what's going to work or not. Let's treat ourselves to one simple thing. Let's get ourselves a Qantas Club membership so that when we have these miserable meetings in Melbourne or Adelaide or Perth or Brisbane for that matter, where people don't really want to know about us, yes. but we're going there. Let's just have ourselves a cold beer at the end of the day and fly back. So we got a Qantas Club membership and always finished off a, a miserable day's marketing with a couple of cold beers. That's what we did. That was our one treat. And how long did this go for? This went on for, I say it went on for a long time. I have spoken to boutiques who have gone years without getting any money. Yes. And ours went for about almost 11 months. Right. And it was November. We started the year with a couple of hundred thousand dollars uh, of funds under management, and that's all it was. A couple of hundred thousand bucks of FUM, and uh, we finished the year with about 150 million. Wow. That meant that the kids got Christmas presents that year, and it meant that we were off and running. But it took 11 months of grinding away and just trying to get an audience. And you get an audience, but just getting someone to take a view, someone to, to yes. place a bet with you. And what are we talking private client? Are we talking no, we're this? talking about a wholesale mandate. Wholesale mandates, yeah. yep. A couple dropped in November. There were two. Two industry super funds took a view on us. And then they subsequently, after seeing that we were, weren't too bad, added to that position. And then the mandate sizes grew and the empty restaurant was all of a sudden open for business and we were away. We also secured a retail mandate. So we began a, an entry into the retail market as well through Australian Scandia. They appointed us as their manager. So we were looking after retail monies for them. And then we were off the bottom and moving forward. And the market was moving as well. And the market, a very convenient backdrop, of course, yeah. is uh, it was the market moving the right way. Risk appetite was re-establishing itself. Uh, we happened upon a, an asset consultant, Watson White, yes, who became Towers Watson, whom we had no prior contact with whatsoever. And they came and saw us and, and had a conversation. And we said, wonder what they want with us. They don't even know us. And they were pivotal to each of those mandate wins that I mentioned. So the two we won and, and a couple that were subsequent to that. And Watson White backed us and we did the right thing by them. And, and uh, lo and behold, we had a wholesale business. And it was from an asset consultant we'd never even heard of until we met them. So there's a little bit of serendipity in the story. The old saying about the harder you practice, the luckier you get. Uh, we were out there doing a lot of practice yes. and pushing and, yes. and doing our darndest. And we're off the bottom. And it was a great feeling to finally get moving. 
And then, of course, like in all businesses, the, the pressures change. You go from pressure of starvation, as it were, yep. no FUM and a business to, to feed, to next minute it's making sure the performance is right. You've got live clients and unit holders. You need to look after them. So the pressures move from privation to making sure you're delivering numbers and not letting people down. And this brings us to the real guts of where you guys ended up. But what comes clear in my readings is that your love of the small cap sector. And you and Brian clearly have developed this philosophy around investing and over time that enabled you to not only attract funds under management, but maintain them, which is number one, and grow them. So tell us a little bit about why small caps. What was it that got you up in the morning and you got excited about it? And clearly when you're passionate about something, you do well at it. Yeah, the beauty of small caps are, are multifold. I mean, they are, every day is different. It's a part of the market that's described by some as niche, undercovered, under-researched, risky even. I look through that and see only opportunity and see these are the big caps of the future. I watched David Paradise and Campbell Bogue when I was at ING. I watched these guys unearth small stories, modest stories with really, really impressive management teams. All of a sudden, these businesses emerged into quite substantial businesses. Yes, I think the thrill of being involved in a, in a story that comes to fruition is exciting. It doesn't happen in the big end of the market. If you buy Westpac shares, nothing terribly transformational is going to happen in the next year or two with a Westpac share other than you're going to float up and down with the vagaries of the economy. That goes for a lot of big caps. A big cap investing is is important and everyone should own big cap stocks, I guess. Yes. And most will who are on this podcast. But in terms of genuine capital growth and growth in wealth, you're going to get that largely from small, emerging and mid cap stocks. So I guess it's a space that was not so well researched. When we went into it, there weren't a lot of managers. There were a couple of big managers, bigger style managers that invested in this area. Yes. But it's an incredibly satisfying and rewarding part of the market to invest in. It's interesting. There's great diversity. You're investing, you could be looking at a biotech stock one day. You could be looking at a a transport group, um, an agricultural group, a series of retailers. You're there at the cutting edge when they're raising money, either they're floating for the first time or they're raising money as they expand and grow their businesses out. In many t- cases, you can look and touch and feel, you can see the growth that's coming and it's, it's exhilarating to be part of them. So there are, I think it's a, it's a part of the market that for good reason attracts professional investors. Yes. You look at the US where small cap investing has pioneered the great gains that get made on the Russell 2000, the great premiums that, they, that that index normally although not of late, but normally the Russell 2000 attracts a very big premium because this is where the growth is, this is where wealth's accumulated, this is where, where great growth is recorded. So I liked that end of the market that was niche. I liked that every day was different. I liked the fact that you could make a, you could make your mark. You could build a portfolio in the small end of the market that was entirely different to your competitor down the road. Yes. You had the chance to differentiate yourself and show them that, um, that you've got a preferable or a better set of set of skills or a better process that has enabled you to smoke out good opportunities and good ideas. And the other thing that mustn't be forgotten is we go into battle every day managing money in the small cap market. We do it with allies and brokers. The broking relationships that, that, that I've built up over my journey, they're, they're my allies. Um, yes. And so they provide great insights and great access to companies. They have equity capital market transactions that they bring us in to be involved in. I love all that interaction. That interaction is is truly, truly exhilarating to be to be involved. You're you're a key player in, in corporate Australia. You're you're assisting with companies' growth plans and expansion plans. So 
it's it's hard to um it's hard to move too far away from small companies. Yeah. If, if you're looking for a meaningful life in the stock market, a, a meaningful professional life, then it's very hard to drift too far away from small and, and, and mid-cap mid cap companies. So, I mean, that's fascinating. So when you developed your philosophy around investing, so Brian, and you clearly developed that through your time before you started the business, what are the key points that you look for? And this is an obvious question, but what are the key things that you look for in a small cap stock? I throw things around like management ownership. I know you're a big believer in ownership because you own your own company. You've had to go through the transitions of building that company yourself. So understanding ownership, valuation, market momentum, things like that. What what are the sort of for for the listener the things you would look for as you've built up Ely Griffiths? Tim, you've hit on some of the elements. I mean, I think in the first instance you've got to have some form of process where as a professional manager you can delineate good value from bad value. When stocks are too expensive or they're too cheap, you, you, you need to know where value exists. You need to know where value lies at every point in time. If you're not going to do that, then you're just taking pot shots. You're nothing more than a momentum manager and you're going with the, the, the rising tide. You're floating up when stocks are up and you're going to get dragged downwards. So if you have no eye to valuation, then you know, you're a cork at sea bobbing right. up and down. So the first thing is a proper process and process needs to be simple. It needs to be straightforward. So we focus on almost simplicity with our process. Simple elements like let's have a look at valuation in terms of, as we do at Ely Griffiths Group, it's growth at a reasonable price. What's the right PE for a forecast level of earnings per share growth? So you become a growth at reasonable price investor. So you can pay very high PEs for stocks as long as the underlying earnings growth is commensurate. Or you can tolerate very low growth names um, as long as you're not paying too much for them. So you have a valuation methodology, and I think that's really, really important. Yes. If that's all you did, you'd look and feel smart, and you'd probably go okay, but you'd miss a, a crucial element, which, as you point out, is understanding just who am I climbing into bed with here? Who are the management team? Who's the CEO? What does the board look like? Most importantly, who's the CFO and CEO, and who's actually making the executive decisions on a daily basis? And Are, are they any good? And... We just spend a lot of time familiarising ourselves with company executives' track records, their experience in the business. We want to know their level of alignment, their shareholdings, their vision, their passion, their understanding for how capital should be allocated. And we do all of that stuff, which means going and meeting them and sitting down with them. It doesn't mean buying the stock and then doing that work afterwards. It can mean often several meetings with a company or an executive team before you actually fire a shot. Yes. You can do the work and, and put that name down, write the stock down, and then wait for the market to pause and pull back, and then you choose your point of entry. That's often how we do it. We just don't buy straight away. We, we, we have an open file of names we want to own. Yes. So and I think wait, And wait for the price to be right. Correct. So yeah. they're, they're, the, they're the formal sort of things one has to do to, to be a good investor. Then there's the other dark art elements of being a good investor. I think applying the, the principles of technical analysis and being aware of trend lines and overbought indicators and oversold indicators. And then you have to get into the, the other, so you, you get on top of that stuff. And then you need to be right across what we call the market internals. And that is what's actually going on below the surface of the market in terms of trading activity, large volume trades that are going through, what stocks are trading at new highs and why are stocks trading at new lows, who's trading at outsized volume today versus the 20-day average volume that that stock normally trades at. Yes. need to be across that. So we do a deep dive into market internals as well as, as, well as looking at our process. So there's a lot of things to contemplate. And, and that's, again, it comes back to risk management, all about 
lining up the elements so that the balance of probabilities would dictate you're on a winning trade. There's a lot of years of sort of work yeah. that gets woven together to ensure that that's how you approach every investing decision. That's how you approach the market. And that's the value of experience. And that's and that's what we try and do. And that's sort of what I've instilled in the team at Ely Griffiths Group. We've got to, we've got to look at businesses, management teams, We've got to look at fundamentals, we've got to look at technicals, and we've got to look at market internals, the true health of the market. This is interesting. So, Ben, look, you worked with Brian on a very complimentary relationship, and you both built the business. Brian retired when he was in 2015, and then unfortunately he was unwell and, and passed away later on in 2018. That must have been a very tough time in terms of the Ely Griffiths group and what had come from a very close working relationship and through. I just wanted to touch on that because it's a pretty important part of your DNA and your fabric and where you've come from. Yeah, no, it was a it was a traumatic time for all all of our staff. Brian had been so pivotal to everything we'd done and to lose a friend, professional colleague and a friend under those circumstances and was truly tragic and a wife and young family. Nobody deserves that and Brian certainly didn't deserve that. And as I'm fond of saying to people that ask, and imagine we've we've talked about this a lot over the journey of our yeah. business, I say to people that if something if one thing constructive came of Brian's disease and ultimate passing, it was the fact that we were able to future proof, if that's the word, Ely Griffiths Group, we were able to recycle Brian's equity and, and ensure that those that were doing the heavy lifting in the business who were much younger than us, the younger guard that were coming through our business, we could ins- ensure that they became owners of the business Yes, because they were making a, a, an outsized contribution anyway to portfolio performance and stock selection. So we were able to transact Brian's equity, not externally, but within the business to preserve our independence and to make sure that Ely Griffiths Group could become wholly owned by staff and we could preserve that magic that is a business that is owned by its keepers. That's how we've evolved. Brian's demise... Uh, if that's the right word to use, Brian's passing, Brian's, Brian's um, failing health was a terrible thing to watch. Yes. Motor neurone disease is a terrible, terrible um, condition. We saw it firsthand. But we built, and Brian would be proud of what we've done, Brian helped build a very strong business with great foundations. Yes. And it's why the business was able to move forward when Brian passed. And our clients and our consultants were resolute in their saying, well, the business will continue onwards and you can count on our support. We had one wholesale client uh, ring us and say, anybody that takes a dollar from you because of what's happened, because of concerns about the ability for Ely Griffiths Crew to withstand that, anyone takes a dollar away, we'll replace it. So we effectively had an underwriting from a great client and that was was pretty satisfying. So we, we, we ran forward. Brian would have been very proud. Oh, of totally. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, that was, that was um, um, a piece of history of the business. And Brian, we often, we often reflect on some of the comments and antics and, and things that Brian used to do. We, we, we talk regularly about it today. Well, you had such a long history together. Yeah. Oh, quite look, right. Thanks. Thanks a lot for sharing all that with us, Ben, because it's, as I say, when you built something like you guys did together, you've gone hand in hand up until this point, and it's really good to be able to listen to the way it unfolded. At the same time, it doesn't make it any easier. So today, for the listeners, Ely Griffiths is now a team of eight with all those foundations and disciplines that was resonated through the business when Brian and Ben were starting it. That puts the Ely Griffiths story 
into a real context. If we got up in a helicopter, you know, you must feel extremely proud of how this has all unfolded over a period of time, you know, through your life. Where it all started out at 15, 16, taking a few positions in stocks because of the dividend payment. And then you look at it now. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. I mean, you've got to start somewhere and then you begin the process of learning and you, you absorb great learnings from people who you work with, people you observe, watching solid company operators and great CEOs in action, watching competitors in action. And as I have gone on a lot about reading the works of some of the great managers and I guess you, you just evolve your own style, but importantly in a business like ours, it's all about developing an investment culture yes. and um, having a sound philosophy but we do a lot of research. We're proud of the work we do. At the end of the day, we know we, we run a money management business and we have analysts and, and, and portfolio managers who are forensic in their approach to their stocks. But at the end of the day, they are right across the vagaries of the market. They, yes. they, live, and, they live and breathe the top down. They thrive in the bottom up. It's a great business to be a part of and it's a great industry to be, to, to be able to be participating in. Oh, fantastic. Well, congratulations. It's not over yet, but uh, and that's where we'll get to the next point. Ben, now look, you've been in the industry for a long time. There must have been some pretty amusing or memorable stories that have popped up on the journey. Have you got any you could recount for us? I mean, we're always interested in, in these, you know, the, the stories you just can't forget. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I probably need to think about that. Uh, there'd be one incident that, that, that springs to mind, and it was um, one year when I was at Mercantile Mutual and I was attending the annual Citigroup Christmas party, which was a, a famous big um, knees up that the industry went to. And I recall being down at this function and there were hundreds and hundreds of people, a cross-section of, of fund managers and analysts and corporates and all sorts of figures there. And I was in a corner with a, a beer, might have even been a glass of wine in my hand, and I was chatting to this um, gentleman who introduced himself quickly and he might have mentioned something about the oil industry and I that was my cue <laughs> to start telling him about the history of the oil industry and I was telling him about this fantastic book that I've just finished reading The Prize by Daniel Jurgen and it's a terrific book that that some of the, the listeners today will even know or if they're interested in any way of the history of the oil industry and how significant it is as an economic force you you, you need to read it so I'd was lecturing this um, gentleman about the, the oil industry and, and upstream and downstream and how it all works and, and, and uh, I gave him great chapter and verse about the history and anyway, he might have heard enough and, and uh, he, he departed and I had another glass of wine and we moved on and, and I remember bending, I bent his ear for probably an hour, an hour or so on, on, the, on the oil industry. The next morning I had a meeting in my, in my diary at 9 o'clock and the office and uh, it was for a new, it was an IPO, a company that was IPOing, it was an oil and gas company so I thought I'll be ready for this meeting. I went out to reception to meet the um, the CEO and the CFO who are going to come in and talk about their company and introduce their company to me. And, course, and lo and behold, it was the guy that I'd been badgering and <laughs> bending his ear for an hour and it was Bruce <laughs> Phillips who was floating his business. He co-founded Australian Worldwide Exploration, AWE. And I, I, just, I, I literally went red and he said, you, and I said, you. And um, I said, oh, I said, Look, I'm so sorry. I had no idea that I was lecturing what turns out to be one of Australia's great oil men. Bruce has built a magnificent business. Um, he's gone on now. He's now the chairman of Karoon right. um, Oil and Gas, which is a six, very successful uh, Brazilian um, oil producer. Yes. And, um, and, and, and Bruce is also um, um, the chairman of uh, ALS, which is a, a laboratory business up in Brisbane. But Bruce was a, a powerhouse and went on to become an even bigger powerhouse in Australian oil and gas. 
both in exploration and production and and uh, and, and downstream activities. And here was me. I just I just cringed. I said, <laughs> "I'm so sorry that I've, I've I was lecturing you on the ways of the oil industry." And you're a veteran of it, and I had absolutely <laughs> no idea. And we both laughed, and and we both. I caught up with Bruce uh, not long ago, and and I actually remarked on that story. I said I still rankle with guilt <laughs> that I was lecturing one of the industry's greats without even knowing it. But um, you made a lasting impression. Well, I did. We both laughed about it um, <laughs> 25 years on. So um, it wasn't it, obviously no damage was done. But I think that was that was that's one story that um, I still laugh at. I. I I'm stunned that I um, got away with it. Ah, oh, that's classic. <laughs> Good on you. Thanks for that. Yeah, no problems. One of the interesting things with, with regards to the people who listen in, we've got all sorts of different types when it comes to the markets, investors, prospective fund managers or directors of small cap companies, management. And it's interesting to hear your views on, on some of the aspects that you come from your day-to-day existence and what you do. I'd just like to put a couple of questions to you in terms of where we're at from an investor perspective. So the logical questions at the moment are we're in an interesting environment where we've got rising interest rates, rising inflation, we've got current stock market valuations. How are you seeing it, Ben, when you look at, say, a six to 12-month time frame with what's going on in the world at the moment? And, you know, there's a little bit of political unrest, there's wars, there's, you know, there's a lot going on that we need to consider. Well, there's always a lot going on, of course. No two days are ever the same in the market. Yes. But what we've had to manage over the last um, several years, of course, has been nothing short of extraordinary with the arrival of COVID and the expectation that COVID would be utterly disastrous to uh, the world economy, people's health, and it has been disastrous to people's health. But quick thinking actions from central banks and, and developed governments of the world meant that the economic cataclysm that we were getting ready for that stock markets were pricing when markets fell apart in February 2020 I guess were averted when liquidity was flooded into the market yes and interest rates were cut to to zero and below zero in some cases and stocks lived to fight another day that sort of volatility when you're a professional manager is can be hard to, to navigate and then we move forward now where from about September of last year the expectation started that inflation was moving in the wrong direction yep and there'd need to be a reset on interest rates and that didn't happen until march of this year federal reserve cranked rates up from march and we've had a rapid fire series of interest rate hikes that has naturally unsettled that whole process has unsettled equity investors so stock markets have been under pressure as yield returns to the market and investors have an alternative. They can put money into fixed interest away from stocks. For the first time in a long time. For the first time in a long time. So there has been a headwind of sorts for stocks, which has played out through the course of 2022. Interesting to see, we're all trying to work out when the pivot will happen, the much fabled and talked about pivot when the US Federal Reserve, who are, of course, the leader in the setting of these um, interest rates, as they have been for, for, for many years, when does the pivot happen? And we saw in June when the first of the Fed hikes of 75 basis points, and there were several at 75, the market's starting to think that maybe we're closer to the end than the beginning. So investors have had to grapple with that. It really wasn't until October of this year that I think equity investors decided that inflation may be almost being tamed now and that rates are probably the rapid and aggressive incremental increases are perhaps behind us. Right. That sort of happened in October, and since then we've seen rhetoric sort of suggests that the increments are going to reduce from where they've been. Stocks have been able to get a bit of a bid. 
Speculation, of course, is that uh, has the Fed hiked so aggressively and so quickly to force the US economy into recession? Is that where we're going? And that will have profound impacts on earnings and so on. Time will tell, of course, whether, in fact, we've uh, June quarter marked the high in inflation and in whether, whether in fact, rates have, have almost run course. I mean, I'm a bit of a believer, um, having read a little, a little bit about this stuff, that the Fed historically has always hiked real rates. Uh, re- the real Fed fund um, has moved. Fed has stopped hiking or ceased its hiking campaign when real Fed fund rate is positive. And after last night's hike of 50 basis points, the real Fed funds rate is sitting at negative 50 basis points. So there's at least another 50 basis points uh, in the in the Fed's um, toolkit. Yes. Before we start to see, I suspect we see real we see the real Fed funds rate being zero to positive, and the Fed will have run course. It remains to be seen. Interesting to see a number of indicators. The yield curve is, is has inverted fairly aggressively, and that happened a little while ago. That's another warning for investors that economic difficulties are upon us. Yes. Or are coming, I should say. Credit spreads also have normalised, and credit spreads are um, probably the ultimate arbiter of, of whether an investor should be entering the water or not. And credit spreads have essentially eased back a bit. They've normalised. So I see that as being kind of constructive, actually, that uh, credit spreads have, have normalised. Yield curves are still inverted. That's somewhat of an issue. And, and sentiment is not as panicked or as pessimistic as it was. So investors have kind of become a little more confident that perhaps the we won't move into recession. Yes. Um, perhaps we move into a slowdown of sorts. It's all to play for. It's it's it, extraordinary times that we're that we're operating in. Stocks will re- recover. Stocks move through cycles. We've had an aggressive year this year, aggressive downward movement, and we're having a revival of sorts right now in stock prices. And let's see what happens. I yes. mean, it's um it's all to play for, as I say. Very interesting. Do you have any sectors that you're favouring more than others at the moment? Oh, look, sure, there certainly is. And if there's one sector that we've been pursuing and, and we, we, we like, I, we describe them as structural growers. And these are, these are companies that, that in economic tough times grow a little slower, but they still grow. And, and, in, and in strong economic times, they go very strongly. And so they have a structural growth element to them where you can be, you can be almost assured that they'll, they'll deliver. And we like those sorts of names. They're not infrastructure stocks. They're, they're, they're more growthy than that. Yes. And um, so we, we've got a... I guess a, a great attraction to those sorts of names, and you know names like Breville and Lavisa are two structural yep. growers that that in challenging times will perform strongly. Domino's Pizza would be another great example of a structural grower. So we like the the look of structural growers in, in the portfolio, and I guess I'm somewhat of a believer. And a lot of talk is made about the big commodity super cycle that's coming. And I'm somewhat of a believer that, that 2023, next year that is, will be a, a great playoff between depressed demand, potentially, brought about by if we have a recession or we have some sort of growth pause, so you'll have some sort of impact on demand. But that'll be offset by structural shortages. There are great shortages across almost all commodity types, whether you're talking about soybeans and corn and, and oats, um, yes. softs, yes. or you're talking about hard industrial commodities, um, base metals. If you're talking about zircon and, and mineral sands, yes. uh, also in, um, in some cases in, in shortages. So there are great structural shortages upon us. You have China awakening from its challenges. If it returns with a strong demand impulse, it'll start to assert itself into a, into a structurally undersupplied commodity market. So we could have the beginnings. It's easy to construct a case that we have the beginnings of this super cycle in commodities. 
And I think part and parcel with the, the super cycle and commodities will be the next stage of large consolidation of, of players. And we've already seen just this year BHP bid for Oz, Oz Minerals. Yes. So I think that large consolidation process um, will play out and is perhaps underway. So it's easy to build a case, I think, for why commodities are going into a, well, they look like they could be moving into a large structural bull market. So we need to be mindful of, of our exposures to materials names. Very interesting. Ben, I just wanted to ask from the perspective of fund managers, one of the questions I was going to ask you is staying true to your conviction and the belief that whether it be in your own business as you're growing it, back when you were trying to find your first capital raise, having belief you were going to get there, but then also taking belief in a selection, a stock selection or the, a sector or a macro feel, that conviction to stay true to that conviction, you must be challenged at some point and to stay there becomes very challenging itself. Can you just give us a bit of an insight into that? Sure. I guess central to that discussion is having a viewpoint on something and, yes. then, and then believing it and doing the work. But sometimes that can be wrong too. You can be convinced that a, a view is correct and it's learning or knowing when to unbend on a strong view and a, and a high conviction position. I know when the market fell apart with the COVID sell-off and the market was down hard. We had large levels of cash in the portfolio, and it was quite exhilarating to have anticipated major economic upheaval and certainly stock market upheaval and positioned the portfolios in a quite a cashed-up way. Yes. It was then the ability to realise after some weeks, having consulted long-term charts and support lines, and it was the conviction of or the belief in consulting and looking at long-term charts and suddenly realising that having a little bit of extra cash was not the way to be and was not the position to have. In fact, stocks were not no longer going down. Stocks were, in fact, with all the stimulus that had been served up through lower rates and, yes. and, and liquidity pumped into the system. It was actually, in fact, the stance was not a pro-cash defensive stance. It was time to get back investing. And to turn tail on a big position took some conviction and some confidence, and that's what, that's what our team did yes. from having generous cash to all of a sudden having not a lot of cash. Deploying it. Deploying cash quickly. Yes. And that required a, a, a change in thinking and a discussion around why our positioning is actually not right for the market we're moving into. And we've had to do a couple of those big rotations over the journey. Probably think of about five or six that we've had to do in 20 years where your conviction and your, and your, and your belief and your positioning gets turned on its head and it's now time to go the other way. You've got to get those right. Yes. And that's what active management is in fact all about, is knowing when there's a market rotation on, that there are new leaders in the stock market, there are new stocks that are now going to take the market forward and you need to be appropriately positioned. Now, ego might get in the way of that decision and poor judgment um, will certainly derail your flexibility and your, your move to readjust the portfolio. So we work really hard, really hard to get those turning points right and if we detect we've got a leadership change underway, then we need to action it. Yes. So we've had to do it a few times, and the most recent major large-scale one was would have been the deep correction that occurred concurrent with um, the COVID outbreak yes. and the spread of COVID. Great example. When you're managing large sums of money for a lot of people, an ability to switch off and achieving that work-life balance in life is often a challenge for everyone. But do you find you are able to switch off at all through 
your career or at, at now because if you feel comfortable with your methodologies clearly yes yes i can i can switch off but only on the basis that i know that this is a seven day a week job yes so i'll, I'll switch off to go to the gym to um to spend time with the family but knowing full well that i'm back on shortly there's no prolonged switch off this business requires it's it, it is a seven day commitment and the better you are across the top-down drivers and how that interplays with the bottom-up drivers, the more potent you're going to be as a manager. So, yeah, I can switch off and I get to the gym regularly and I am hit the beach and, and, and enjoy a great family life and, and, and so on, but I'm back on pretty, yeah. pretty quickly thereafter. That's I think that's the difference between the greats of investing, and I don't put myself in that category, but, but some of the greats, they are, they are live the whole time on this stuff. The and they enjoy it, and they get and they really get off on it. I was going to say the flip side is the passion runs thick. That's it. And they they That's love it. what they do. Yep. Last section we've covered yes. investors, fund managers, small companies. With the small companies, you look at a lot of them. If you were to look at for management boards, that sort of thing of small companies, and you're you're building a company to get to that next level, what are the sort of things you identify as key criteria when you're looking at a small company to invest in? I guess I'll answer this almost along the lines of what our process tries to tease out. But essentially, a small company must be, in our eyes, it, it must be relevant or in the process of becoming relevant. Yes. That is, it's got a, a motive to grow top line. It, it has a motive to grow, to grow a sales line. It has a genuine passion to become profitable. That it's setting out to build something or do something in the interests of its underlying owners it is not a business that's being run for purely for the enjoyment and benefit of directors. And there are many of those around that we see right. that, that masquerade as genuine investment candidates, but they are purely being run for the, for the benefit of directors. So if you're a small company that's trying to attract our eye and our attention, you need to be a business that is generally set out to grow top line and bottom line and ultimately grow its earnings per share so that it can reward us with a dividend. So it must have that business focus and it must have a, a genuine business intent about it. Ideally, it'll be a business that's in a growth industry, an industry that's naturally, the rising tide will see it grow its revenues. We want to see a business that has a sensible balance sheet, and as I mentioned before, that with a management team that know all about allocating capital, yes. and they are looking at, at all times to optimise the return on equity and ensure that they're actually putting capital to work efficiently. I guess the company we're looking for will have a very clear growth agenda, It'll have depth to its management team. It'll, it'll have an independent board, but a strong board. It's those sorts of things. Yeah, um, yeah. We're, 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 we're looking at, um, we look at so many businesses and the, the common threads keep coming back to management calibre and quality and the quality of the business model. Yes. And the fact that the business model can endure through tough times and, 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 and good times. We want to see businesses that are operating in what we call rational industries sensibly constructed industries we, we want where there's a genuine profit motive at work across the competitors so it's not too much to ask for <laughs> but it is they're the sorts of yeah. things that we drill down on yeah no, um, no absolutely and, and that's what and that's aspiring companies that are looking to attract our attention need to be need to be along those lines they don't have to be exciting they can be plain boring they need to have all the right principles Ben, we're on the home stretch. I know we're conscious of time, but I, I just wanted to maybe move a little bit out of investing. That's been fascinating insights. And, and it really is, really is interesting to see your take on a lot of this stuff. And I look at that and go, right, well, we've covered off on the full spectrum there. What I want to talk about now is more about what you do outside of work. 
and I know having sort of spent a bit of time in Sydney myself, there's this magnificent building at North Bondi called the North Bondi Surf Club. And I know you're, you've been integral in the raising of funds and, and being able to plan and, and have that facility available for, for the North Bondi Surf Club residents to use. Fascinating achievement. And tell us a little bit about that passion, knowing you're, a, you're an early, early adopter of the North Bondi Surf. <laughs> It's been fascinating to be able to give back. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was, um, I'd honestly say, one of my um, sort of crowning achievements was was being given the, the brief down at North Bondi Surf Club, where I was, I've been a member since I was 15 or 16, was can you help us build a new surf club? And um, myself and, and my long-time mate, Peter Colhoun, got together and Peter commissioned uh, Neil Durback of Durback Block Jaggers, uh, one of Australia's foremost architects, a firm of architects, between the creative side that Peter championed and the financial side that I got after, we managed to raise, including club savings, around $6 million. And with $6 million, we built, and those of you who visited Sydney or live in Sydney's East will be well familiar with the um, surf club that we have down there. Uh, we built the, um, the, the new surf club, and it was, a, it was a, a, an extraordinary project. It took a lot out of, um, it was six years in the making, from, from the whiteboard to uh, cutting the ribbon. So a six-year journey for myself and our club. It certainly got its, extracted its pound of flesh from me. Um, it, was, it was a great, great commitment of time, but extraordinarily satisfying at the same time. Great to have been able to do it. It's the, I think I'm on safe ground here in saying it's the pride of the fleet. There's over 300 surf clubs in the Australian, amongst the Australian movement, and I think our surf club would take pride of place, be up in the top one or two in terms of you know, certainly membership and st- status and, and leadership. But um, in terms of what we did there, to be able to raise that money to build what we did, not too many clubs, probably in the history of the movement, and the, the history of the movement's well over 106 years, have been, actually been able, to able, have been able to achieve that. So I was a, a key part of a great team that rebuilt um, North Bondi Surf Club, what it is today. So, And you're right in your comments, I've, I took the view that I had to give back, having, having drawn and taken so much out as a young lifesaver and a competitor and a boat rower and then using the gym and staying fit it was probably time that this old bloke gave a bit back. And so I did, um, I, it played on my conscience greatly that um, it was time to time to do something and within my means that I was able to do. And, and I put myself in contact with some of Australia's richest people and some of Australia's richest families. I hit every member in the surf club for a check of some description and we took the battle around Australia to try and raise money and we, and we did it. So it was a great moment and, and as I say, those of you that are at... Um, who ever live in Sydney or visit Bondi occasionally. If you see me down there, come and say hello. Um, <laughs> and if you don't see me down there, we'll certainly go past and, um, and, and admire what was, we've built down there. It's a, it's a great addition, to your point, to the North Bondi community. And I think yeah. the, the accolades have been great and it's won a few awards. It's been a, a great thing I've done. So. Well, fantastic. Well done. It's a, you can't miss it when you get down there. It's a fantastic-looking uh, building. Ben, as I say... <laughs> We've been going for a little while and I'm conscious of your time, but I just wanted to say on behalf of all of us at Euros Hartleys and from all the listeners too, congratulations on a fantastic career in building your business. It's been a fantastic journey, a real, really great insight. You've provided us with some fantastic takeaways, I think, from all walks of life. And the fact that you're here in Perth, over from Sydney and you could come along and take some time out with us and be generous with your thoughts and your, your, your opinions and, and your experiences is, is really appreciated. So 
from all of us again. Thanks a lot for coming along. We really enjoyed it and hopefully we can do it again. Thanks, Tim. It's been fun. Good on you. I look forward to coming back on the show. Good on you, Ben. Thanks. Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.